Awesome. Well, welcome back to the Recess Podcast, the unfiltered podcast for aspiring entrepreneurs. Today, we have a very special guest and actually a former professor of Jacob and myself, Professor George Kruger. How are you today? Doing great. How are you? Doing amazing. Fantastic to have you on here. Um, thanks for your time, of course. Thanks for uh, uh, thanks for inviting me. Of course. I usually don't get invited back, you know, from former students. So well, that's what we're here for. <laughs> Well, um, being a senior, being a senior second semester, looking back on my college career and all the classes I've mm-hmm. taken, the ones I've liked, the ones that I haven't liked, I do have to say your class was by far <laughs> my favorite out of all of them. And you had something that you said um, first or second day of class. You were talking about like why a lot of people have this misconception of entrepreneurship and how mm-hmm. it's really scary. And there's this stat out there that says you know 99 percent of businesses fail. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how, you know, maybe that wasn't so true because there's a lot of things they're taking into account of that stat that might not really be true. Yeah. And that was very changing for me of my perspective on entrepreneurship. And so I'd love Good. if you could talk quickly about kind of that. that and statistic. Yeah, that statistic specifically. Yeah, because it bothered me um, that the fail rate was so high. Mm-hmm. And so I started investigating it. And, you know, we, we don't if someone goes to work at a company and then they get a promotion, we don't count that as a failure. Mm-hmm. But in the startup world, that would be counted as a failure. Right. Somebody who starts a business, they get a better opportunity, they move to that opportunity, and they now don't have time for the original business, mm-hmm. that's considered a failure, and it doesn't seem like it should be. In addition, you know, when a company's bought, that company, that company goes away. Usually, they set up a new corporate shell or whatever. Yeah. But the point is, you know, like I think the person I used then was Arianna Huffington. She sold her firm for three hundred fifteen million dollars, mm-hmm. and that's considered a failure. Well, I'll fail every day of the week <laughs> if I can make three hundred fifteen <laughs> exactly. million bucks. So it's all relative. Yeah, it is. Wow. So I guess like taking it back a little bit, we learned a lot about entrepreneurship and financing businesses from you. Mm-hmm. But what's kind of your story? How did you? What was this big spark for you that got you interested in entrepreneurship? I know you shared some stories in class, but I'd love yeah. to hear those. I think a lot of it was my dad was was a builder and a, a, an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, very, you know, he never went to college, but he he did a you know made a good living for myself and my sisters and my mom. Um, so I think that was kind of part of it. And then it's just I guess as I as I got towards the end of my high school years, and I started being presented with opportunities to do certain things. Um, I just couldn't stand in, in my gut. It just ate me alive that I wasn't in my own business. Mm. And so I think it was really just, for me, the spark that I have to do this. I have to try out, try out on my own what I can do and see what I can do. And I don't like answering to somebody else. I knew that from dealing with my dad. Um, <laughs> he, he, anyway, um, so so it just I, I, I had to own my own business. And so I ended up uh, working for a company that sold screen print, screen print and sportswear. Mm. And it just happened to be a year that Illinois went to the Rose Bowl, mm. which that doesn't happen very yeah, often. Right. And it just happened to be a year when um, when I was dealing with the company that I was with gave me Kmart as an account. Back then, Kmart was the second largest retailer. Mm. And so I could walk into a Kmart store and walk out you know, a couple thousand dollars richer in about 45 minutes because they were so they were buying so much memorabilia mm-hmm. and um, so that got me the cash to start my own business then this question became what's the business and so I would go off to work commission sales do that all day long come home have a bite to eat finish up the paperwork and then I would just spend until like 
2 o'clock in the morning just studying business because I dropped out of college. Mm. And uh, so that's what got me going. And then um, I guess to finish this story, in, in my hometown, which is kind of the trade center for the county, um, there were two stores. They're kind of like, I call them Walgreens without the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Because they carried name brands, we, we carried name brand stuff. It was high quality stuff, but we we were like the only provider for some of the stuff in town. Well, there two two stores like mine, which I hadn't started yet, but two stores in my little hometown, um, announced they were closing like right after Christmas. And it's like there's an opportunity. So when the second one announced, they were the bigger one. I was on the phone because I'd studied so much about business and everything. I'd studied so much to be ready. And by eight o two the next morning, I was on the phone with. The company's name was Ben Franklin, with their franchise operations, saying, "I want, I want into this, into this business in this location." Mm-hmm. We were the fir- first of five calls that day, so that's why we got it. And so, at 23 years old, I'm on my way to my first real at-risk business, and I had to raise in today's dollars about 600,000, and I had about 10. <laughs> and so, um, that was the first, that was the first big accomplishment was just wow. getting the money. So you you said you studied business since you basically dropped out of college. Yep. What did you do to study business? That Everything was before uh, ChatGPT and yes, it Google was days. <laughs> <laughs> before before the internet. Before yeah. you know, I mean, it was it wasn't easy. But I read books. I studied. I I, I devoured magazines. Um, anything having to do with business franchising, because I knew that I needed to be part of a franchise organization because they could fill in the business experience that I didn't have, mm. um, and that turned out to be a good move. Um, but it was just anything and everything I could lay my hands on that, that I thought might might be worth something, and I really focused on franchising because I thought that should be my first business, which it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. So you were a retailer in that, at that time, and at you were selling time. products similar to what the stores were that were closing? Yeah, yes, yes, the exact same thing. So we went in and filled that gap, and so you know I was like 22, 23 years old. We were the, one of the biggest stores in town. Um, I remember... Um, Leaving the store at two o'clock the morning before we're going to open, and they're they're redoing the pavement out front of the of the store because mm-hmm. they want everything to look pristine for this opening because it was so important to the community, and uh, so I ended up on the board of directors. My first board of directors like a year later, and uh, so that got me dealing with older business people, mm-hmm. and one of the greatest lessons I learned out of that was um, I learned about about the importance of precedence, and how we, you treat a customer, you better be ready to treat that next customer exactly the same because mm. uh, you're, you're starting to form a preference or a precedent and precedents are, are very powerful things because if you treat one person one way and another person another way, we're offended. And that's especially true, I think, today. So mm-hmm. that's one of my great lessons being on the board. Was there any big first failure that that's you had in that G's, business? Right? Yeah, big with two G's. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again, Jacob. I'm sorry. Did you, did you have any like big failure in that first business that really taught you uh, any big lessons? The, the the big failure was the business itself, um, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is, um, about three years in, I got restless. I'm a very restless entrepreneur, and so we opened another business, and it happened to be a carpet cleaning business. And so very different from what I had, but I'd sat down and I'd made a list of here's what I like about the business we're in and here's what I don't like. And then I went out looking for a business that gave me more of what we liked Mm -hmm. and it turned out to be carpet cleaning. Um, Well, our carpet cleaning company, the investment was like about $50,000, whereas the store was about $600,000. But yet I noticed that the profit of the carpet cleaning business was rising to a point where it's like, any year now it's gonna pass the store. 
And it's like, okay, mm. I've got all this money invested in this business. I should be investing more over here and get out of this. And then sales started passing, surpassing the store. And it's like, mm. okay, it's time for me Nuts. to get out. So we liquidated the store. And at that time, I bought out my partner. So it was a good opportunity to kind of get to be the sole entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Back to the thing you had just brought up about the, the precedent. Mm-hmm. Was there a big moment where like a customer had come up to you and be like, why are you treating the second customer differently than me? Or what made that such a big lesson for you? It wasn't, I don't think it was anything with my business. It was things watching, this was on the chamber board, the chamber of commerce board, Mm -hmm. watching these old guys, I can say that now, even though I'm older than they were, (laughs) but um, watching these old guys deal with problems and issues in front of them. And then just clearly like, uh, explicitly bringing up the, the subject of precedence. What what does that mean to the next in the next situation like this? Mm. And I think maybe I avoided a lot of those instances because I got that lesson quite early. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it seems like you had a great opportunity to learn from other people's mistakes. Absolutely. being on that board early. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So how would you suggest someone nowadays they get into a similar position where you know they can see a lot of these other people, other entrepreneurs, whether they're older, um, more experienced. How could someone get into a similar position like you got on the board? Boy, that's a great question. I, I, I think you just take every opportunity you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs has a great um, uh, commencement address at Stanford mm-hmm. University about connecting the dots. Yeah, and, love that. And I think that ultimately, it's 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 not about. I, I think things just opportunities kind of follow into your into your uh, space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do have to say no to some, but the question is, when you're getting ready to say yes to something, always ask yourself, what, what does this mean I'm saying no to? Because you are definitely say, saying no, because no matter how much money we may ever have, Elon Musk still has 24 hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, for, for entrepreneurs and CEOs, that's the most important thing is guarding that time. So I think picking things that are relevant, but also like if it were me now, I would be looking for those opportunities to, to, to um, interact on boards and in uh, clubs, et cetera, where the people are different than me because that helps me broaden my perspective. Mm. Mm. That's a very good point. Yeah. That's awesome. I think the uh, quote, if I remember it, from Steve Jobs was like, you can't connect the dots looking forward, only yep. looking backwards. So because of this, you have to have blind optimism that everything is going to work out in the end, yep. and it usually does. Yeah. So l- looking back now, mm-hmm. what do you think were some of those things that in the moment you're like, uh, this might not be a good thing that's happening in life, but actually it's going to lead to a lot of positives later on. Mm, boy, that's a good question. Um, I think the first thing was just seeing um, what, what I talked about earlier about seeing the carpet cleaning business, mm-hmm. profit rising and the sales rising above the, the, the big investment I'd made. I think um, really seeing that was huge. I think another thing is... Um, I I still fight this. I sometimes have wished success upon somebody that they didn't have themselves, mm. and that's a really bad path to go down. Um, it's really it's it's it only leads to discouragement. And so, I think that um, getting to know your people, getting the culture set right, getting your vision, your mission, your values, all that in place, that's hugely important. But it's also important for you to develop that one-on-one with certain people, and if they're the wrong person for the job, you got to get rid of them fast. And it's the best thing for them. Ultimately, it's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for your people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. those are a couple that yeah. come to mind, Ron. I'm sure that can be hard, though. It's really hard. I mean, I had uh, the the one 
I remember here, and I think you guys may have heard this from the class, but um, I'd hired my best friend, and it was kind of a temporary thing because he was he was he was between a business that he owned and what he was wanting to do next, and what he wanted to do next wasn't available yet. And so I brought him in, and he was very helpful, but not as helpful as we needed. And so I'm sitting there one day, and it's you know, I go into the office knowing that I'm going to have to fire my best friend that day, and uh, that that was tough. And in fact, it's making me you know a little teary-eyed right now. Um, it was just a horrible realization that his day was going to get rocked because mm-hmm. of me. And uh, so anyway, I, I sat at my desk. I got ready to punch the button to call his office, and I heard a knock at the door. And it was him. And he said, can we talk? And I'm like, yeah. And he said, I don't think this is working out. Mm, and I just wow. I felt the, the release from the body mm-hmm. of all the stress just because we, it wasn't going to be ugly. Now, within a very short period of time, I hired another good friend, or I fired another good friend. That one was ugly because yeah. we just couldn't part on, a good, on good terms. And uh, we still now will say hi when we see each other. Mm-hmm. We've hung out a little bit, but it's nothing like what it was. And you have to, I guess, if you hire friends, you have to be ready for that. But here's here's how to avoid it, I think. Um, this isn't true 100%, but somebody once told me that if, you, if you're friends and you go into business, look out. But if you're in business together and you become friends, that works. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's served me really well. Interesting, yeah. That's a powerful mantra. Yeah, it really is. Now, one of my former students started Tiesta T. He's best friends with a guy from like high school or maybe even junior high, and they have totally made it work. They're they're as happy together as they possibly could be. They love working together. So there's the anomaly. Yeah, I mean, it does happen, but it's just it's on on a whole. Um, right. Business divorces are way more common than mar- than actual marital divorces. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. Yeah, I, I want to go back quickly to you said your first big business that you started was the 600000 you needed. Mm-hmm. And you in had today's to, dollars. In today's dollars. And yeah. you had to raise that yeah. in some way. Yeah. So did how did that work out? Did you go call up some people you knew that had a bunch of money? Or? That was part of it. Then the other part was because it was a franchise, they were able to help me. We, we, we tried, like, I think three banks, if I remember right. And they, they these banks had all been hit hard by the farm uh, economy just, like, years before that. And so they were still recovering. But the franchisor had a program where if you couldn't get local money, they would help you get national money. And so mm-hmm. I ended up with a, um, a money center bank and one of the biggies. And uh, that's, not all, that's not necessarily ideal, but it's what we ended up with. Right. The good news was we were trying to come up with, and this interest rate sounds ridiculous, but sounding less ridiculous than it was <laughs> two years ago. But we, were stri- we wanted to do local money because we could lock in a 13 and three quarter percent rate. Wow, thirteen oh and gosh. three quarters percent, and so we we weren't able to get that. So that meant we ended up with a loan with Money Center Bank. They would only do a loan if we could float two percent above prime. Well, within like six months, the market just started slowing down and interest rates fell. We were below ten percent, like within six oh. months of we opened. So we went from thirteen and three quarters percent, just kicking ourselves because we couldn't get the loan to being less than 10% because we were able to get the loan through somebody else who was basically had better terms as it it turned out. Yeah, I think a lot of people could think about that and say, you know, that you got really lucky, right? Which you probably did. But, I mean, a lot of those situations, like, you just have to put yourself in a position to get lucky, right? And maybe that specific decision wasn't, like, one where you, like, did something crazy or made the right right decision or whatever. Like, looking back, you definitely did. But just making... Like those 
putting yourself in positions to get lucky, like with this business in general, stuff like that is definitely yeah, crazy. Absolutely right. So how, how did it work out in the end when you said you had to liquidate the business? How did you sell it to someone? How did no, this work? We actually, I looked in that particular case, and of course you guys have been through the class, so you know we talk about exit strategies. In mm -hmm. that particular case, we liquidated the, the business. But the thing that's interesting about that was um, I, I talked with every, there's all these consultants around that help stores close. Mm -hmm. and I watched their operations because they were in the area. And so I looked at every time they got a customer, you'd know because they ran certain types of advertising. Mm. And so I could just watch, like, what, what are they mailing? What are they putting in the newspaper? What are they saying on the radio? I could totally get kind of their, their media buying habits. And so I learned from them, too, that most businesses, when they liquidate, start out with too low of a discount and end up with too high of a discount. Or I'm sorry, it's the opposite of that. They start out too high, they end up too mm -hmm. low. And so, um, and my franchisor, they were willing to run a liquidation for you, but they were one of those who discounted too much in the beginning and too yeah. little at the end. So I'm like, okay, I think I can, I think I can do this on my own. And present value of, of, of liquidating the business is greater than the present value of selling it to somebody and having to finance part of it. Mm -hmm. So I did run those numbers. So we started this uh, campaign, and basically we said, whenever our sales volume went below four times what we expected we would have done if we weren't going out of business, we'd we'd ratchet the discount or the discount rate up. Mm. We never hit. We never got there. Really, the business was so good going out of business. I've always said, <laughs> if I could start a business to go out of business, that would be my business <laughs> because Ideally, it yeah. is just. I mean, there's something magical to people about those words going out of business. Everybody thinks they're going to get a great deal. And so, um, so ended up actually making a, quite a bit of money um, from liquidating the store, and that that was great. So then wow. I, I used that money to buy out my partners. So, so you had that first business, and then you had the carpet cleaning business that mm -hmm. was there. From there, how many total LLCs or businesses in general have you formed? I think the last time I looked, it was like twenty six, something like that. Yeah, twenty six. So, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a big number. Now I started like when I was. Um, just out of high school, well, actually, I'd gone off to college. I dropped out after a semester, um, and I started a fertilizer business with my dad. And we were like nationally recognized. We were the number one sales sales team in the country. Um, so we had our fertilizer business. I had uh, um, a distribution business where we were importing goods from overseas. I mean, it's just whatever struck my fancy, I tried it and uh, made money and uh, did okay. And but just kept moving up to bigger and bigger businesses. What was the most amount of businesses at a time that you had worked on? Was it always like one and on to the next? No, it's, it's more like about eight. Eight at a time. Yeah. When I, when I had my HVAC company and my, so I had HVAC, plumbing, uh, home repairs, carpet cleaning, small facility. It's like more than Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, mine aren't quite as big as that. Um, but yeah, I had quite a few at a time. I, I call, I think there are solo, there, there are specialist entrepreneurs and those are the people who just kind of, it's a craft. And they love what they do, they love the product, they love painting, they love, you know, whatever that business does, they love it. Uh, my dad loved to lay bricks, that would be his favorite business. He would do it for free if, 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 he, if he had to, to to be able to do it. Um, so those are the specialists. And then there's serializers, which is what we often think of. We start a business, we get it going, we sell it off probably, we start another one, we start another one, et cetera. And then there's what I call synchronous entrepreneurs, which is they like to have multiple things going on at the same time. That's me. Mm -hmm. So you, a lot of those that you mentioned were service businesses. Is yes. that kind of where you find your, yep. your like best? 
yes. best area to be in I for leave you. manufacturing up to Larry Gies. <laughs> <laughs> there you but go. I, I don't, I've never owned a manufacturing company. I, I've been retail and service, and that's where I'm most comfortable. You know, now moving it online, that's that's quite a challenge. Um, but, uh, yeah, service businesses, is, I love service businesses. And, and how active were you with each of these? Like, for example, during the time where you were running eight at a time, I assume you just hired people to run each of them and yeah. you would just oversee them? That's the or, ideal. Okay. Until they screw up and you have to step in and run it. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, what you, that's what you're looking for, and that's what I've been able to, to, to do. You know, entrepreneurship, it's a lot more fun when you – I don't know how to say this in a good way – um, Just let it out. Unfiltered podcast. There you go. Um, <laughs> customers are wonderful people. But I've found that when I'm able to put a layer between me and the customer, life gets a whole lot easier <laughs> because they're dealing, you know, when it hits my desk now, it's really, really, really bad. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there are times, especially in early stages and when you're young, you don't have much money. You got you to gotta do it. You got to be the person who's there. Talking to the customer, I have a we have one of our clients. Um, she actually she started the business. She runs the business. Her husband doesn't have really anything to do with the business, but she he's the president. She's the vice president. I said, why do you do that? She says, well, because if I'm out in the field and we're meeting with a potential client and they ask for something that I'm not willing to like make a decision on, she says, I could just say I need to consult with our president. Mm. <laughs> and so even though she is the decision maker. She, she keeps that as a safeguard, and I think that's kind of an interesting idea. That is pretty interesting. So you basically took a lot of these businesses from zero to one, either with mm-hmm. your business partner or just you, and then from there you just kind of hire someone to mm-hmm. run and oversee. So I yep. feel like a big part of your time then went into hiring and maintaining the relationships mm-hmm. with the leaders, right? Yes. So you mentioned the one thing about like hiring your friends and the whole um, do's and don'ts of that. Yep. What have been some other big lessons when you've been looking for people to hire? Where would you find them? Were they all in your personal network? And how would you know if they're like the right fit? Network, yes. That's pretty much it. Um, I would say, I guess, I've gotten a fair number of really good managers through acquisitions. And that's one of the great mm-hmm. advantages of acquisitions is, yeah. is the people who come with it who know way more than I'll ever know about the business, but they they have the ability to not just – run the business, but also take care of the people in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the, the, the critical challenge with any of these people is getting an alignment between vision, mission, and values. And if you've got that, you've got something going. And vision and mission can be, you know, all these things should be pretty solid, but you can, you can pivot that vision, but boy, the values, you gotta, you got to get those set. Can you explain them? I think a lot of people get confused between those three and just think of them as like buzzwords that a company just says many yes. times. What is the exact difference between a mission and a vision? Values are more okay. self-explanatory, but I want to hear your take on it. I was hoping you would explain it to me, Rohan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so vision is what, right? Vision is, is what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, what the future holds. Okay. Mission is why. That's, that's the why. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Why, why does this business need to exist? Why does, why do, you know, the customers we have, why is it that they should, should do business with mm-hmm. our, our company as opposed to somebody else's? And then the values are simply just that, your core beliefs. What, what, what makes you, you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like one, I think that a lot of times we think vision has to be things like honesty, which of course it is. I mean, to me, that's almost a given. Yeah. 
but like um, for companies, one of the things we do at Big Success is we bring business to life. And so we're all about personal entrepreneurship. And so kind of personal leadership in your own life, but with an entrepreneurial bent to that. And um, I think it's so important to um, it's so important to think outside the box in terms of values because it's not just it's not just honesty and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that should be a given. But it's it's also like things like an entrepreneurial culture. You know, do do is it important for me to be an entrepreneur and everybody else is kind of, they're kind of employees, or are we a team? Or are we a team of entrepreneurs? You know, like one of the things Larry Gies does is he's very much all about an entrepreneurial attitude being pervasive throughout the whole organization. Mm-hmm. And when they go out looking for companies, they look for entrepreneurs running companies that are good fits for his vision and mission. Um, so I don't know. Does that help? Yeah, that helps. So you kind of being at the top, a lot of these businesses and organizations you've run, how do you actually bring those down to the, the, the bottom level, basically? Like, do you just put them on a wall at the office and say, these are our values, make sure you embody them? Or how do you actually translate that, the meaning behind those? It's day to day. Every single day, every single decision, every single action, every single, you know, like, like an example would be um, in my HVAC business, um, we had a policy that nobody drove their vehicles home. Then one day we let a person drive their vehicles home. We just set a precedent, the wrong one. We also just got crucified because somebody else had asked the week before and we didn't let them do it. So you've got to have consistency every single day and every single decision and everything you do. And if you don't do it, which you won't all the time, you got to you got to step, take a step back, say, folks, folks, I screwed up. This goes against our values, but I recognize it. And here's what I would do next time. And here's what we're doing to rectify the situation. You just, it's, it's, it is, that's why it comes down to honesty. Um, you know, that's just such a critical thing that we don't, it's like I said, it should just be a given. Mm-hmm. Wow. So of, of these, all, all these businesses you've run, what's been one of your favorites? Big success. Big success. Yeah. Cause I, I would say what I have done, had done my whole life until big success, um, was I had been very opportunistic. So when an opportunity showed itself, like the carpet cleaning business, I, um, Bought that business because they were the second fastest growing franchise chain in the whole country at that time. And I'd never heard of them, which meant a lot of people in my territory, potential territory, had never heard of them. And so that 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 made for a good opportunity for me. Um, so I think that uh, um, big success was the first time when I stepped back and I said, okay, what do I really want to do with my time? And what it came down to is meetings with our employees where, um, like uh, one plumber who I always knew when he was around because he shuffled his feet. He didn't step. He, and so one day I heard him shuffling his feet and I hear those feet getting closer to my office. And I mean, this guy's a pre, he's a crotchety old plumber. That's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> I mean, everything that that envisions, that's it. <laughs> um, but good, good plumber, good guy, but I heard him marching towards my office, and I mean, he could have a temper, and I'm like, okay, what's coming on now? Because people don't usually walk into my office without me knowing why they're coming. And so he comes in, he shuts the door. It's like, uh-oh. And he says, I want you to know that what you're doing in our staff meetings is changing not just my, my time at work, but it's changing how I deal with my wife, how I deal with my kids, how I live my life. Wow. And that's really valuable to me. 
And so what hit me from that was obviously that was very nice, and it was so ha- I was so happy to hear that and to hear that he's making changes and actually being close enough to him to see that he's making changes. Um, but what that got me realizing was that's what I really want to do more of, like stuff like what we're doing right here. I love this. I love teaching my class. I mm-hmm. love Big Success because it's all about bringing content to people about the entrepreneurial mindset and how it helps you whether or not you ever own a business. I love that, and because of that, that's that's why we started Big Success. So my why now is very much in line with my what, mm-hmm. and I've narrowed the focus to just education, and life is so much better for me. Yeah, wow. that sounds really awesome. It's like super good to hear that you found something that yeah. is really aligns with your values and everything, which is awesome. How do you? So you you said to touch back on, on what you were talking about earlier. You said a lot of opportunities came in front of you mm-hmm. um, for all the. You said twenty six businesses. That's a yeah. lot. Mm-hmm. So out of all these times, what are some of the ways that like helped you see? You know, oh, I, I have problems in my everyday life, mm-hmm. and I don't always think like that could be a business. When right. in reality, it could be. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you kind of see those for what they are, and how do you go from having you know an idea to starting a business? Well, I think, um, and I'm going to go back, Jacob, to actually kind of an earlier answer, which is, um, so my first business, my first real at-risk business, when I raised all kinds of money, had tons of, I mean, really, I look back now, it's like, I was so crazy to do that. I mean, the risk that was there was ridiculous, but I was 22, 23 years old, and I didn't really understand risk, and that's probably a good thing, Mm because this got me started. But... The smaller store closed the day after Christmas. The bigger store closed like two weeks later. Does that sound like opportunity? I mean, you don't have to be a genius to see that there's an opportunity there. And I just happened to know who to call. And so that got us in line, and we ended up getting the franchise. With I, I didn't finish the story about the carpet cleaning business. The carpet cleaning company was ranked number two. Number one was a company I had heard of, Domino's Pizza. It's like, this is a pretty good list. I'm not going to try to buy a Domino's pizza, but that carpet cleaning business, that might be worth looking into. Mm-hmm. And so I did it. Um, we had a lot of people on. I, I knew a lot of people because of my dad's construction business. I knew a lot of construction people, so we started doing construction. That was the third business. And then I had all those businesses going, and I decided to come back to college and get my degree, which I did. Um, and that was an opportunity to me. Um, and, I, and while I was there, I got my master's, which allowed me to teach. I never dreamt I would get to teach, but I got to teach, and I've now been at it that 28 years. And uh, I, I love it more every year now that we're past COVID and masks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think it's just, to me, it's keeping your <coughs> eyes open and just kind of, once again, just letting the dots come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really helpful. The other thing I'd say, though, is I often tell people, carry a notebook with you. Because your best ideas usually don't come when you're trying to find an idea. Mm-hmm. So when you're walking home from class, you get an idea because you just saw something, and write it down. And then when you get back to your apartment or whatever, um, maybe think about, okay, what are some things I might do? Who might have contact about this business idea? You know, just like what can I do to just get something started, some investigation? And that investigation is just an important skill for later when you're really looking at an opportunity seriously. Mm, yeah, that's really good advice. That's huge. Going back a little bit to big success. Mm-hmm. So I think we know what it is. A lot of the audience doesn't. Mm-hmm. You want to describe that in your own words? Yeah, we're a, uh, a coaching and course development company at this point. Um, we do have a lot of kind of tangential uh, businesses, like we do some digital marketing and stuff like that uh, for other companies uh, based on what we've learned. 
Um, mm-hmm. but, but big success, as I said, we bring money or we bring entrepreneurship or business to life. Um, we teach people how to have the skill sets of an entrepreneur, that critical entrepreneur mindset. Things like talking about how, how do we manage risk? How do we control risk? How do entrepreneurs look at risk? And how do they move forward in the face of all this chaos and uncertainty? Mm-hmm. That's a skill set for, this, for these times, whether you ever start a business or you always work the corporate route. Um, that's a huge thing for people to learn to do. And uh, we also, um, we just in fact relaunched a product we had to kill it because of COVID, because the database we refer to was pretty much irrelevant. Because it's it's what we do is we, you guys know in class, we do an analysis of the business. Well, this is an analysis of your personal finances mm-hmm. compared to people who make the same kind of money you do. And you can sit there and we do smiley faces and frowny faces. Wow. So that it's a real easy thing to figure out. And so you just sit there and you look for frowny faces because that means there's room for improvement in that expense line. Mm-hmm. And the idea we're trying to come up with is you, you want to start a business, here's a way to get some find some money that's hidden, hidden treasure in your own current behavior. You just got to modify a few things, but this is going to tell you what to modify. Mm-hmm. And so we do stuff like that. Interesting. I know as part of this, you also have a podcast now with over a thousand episodes, Jacob yes. and I saw. Um, what do you feel like have been the biggest things that you've learned from even, that's a lot of time spent on <laughs> podcasting. You said you started that in 2007, right? 2007, yeah. Wow. And we wouldn't have started, I mean, the, the deal here is there's a person we haven't talked about yet, and that's my wife. Mm-hmm. And so my wife... Um, I'm the boss, but she makes all the decisions. Let's just make sure that's clear. Um, but she came out of radio. So, like, for her, the idea of the of – the so I was going to start a consulting firm. That's that's what I was going to do. That, that was my response to the plumber. It's like, okay, I'll just start a consulting firm. Um, but then she got – she was coming up kind of at the near – near, close to the uh, end of her, of her contract – and so we sat down and did some financial analysis. This is what I'm talking about when I say bring it to life. We sat down and did some financial analysis of, of the future of her industry, and it looked pretty, 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 pretty dismal. And so way before people were talking about the state of radio, she exited and got into podcasting. And um, so there was no question we weren't just going to be a consulting firm anymore. We were going to be a podcast or have a podcast. And so we started that podcast. Um, it got us Microsoft as a customer. Um, got to meet some awesome people, like the head of uh, the head of new media for CNN was at that first our first conference we went to. I mean, when you say customer, you mean like as an advertiser on the actually podcast? Actually, in that case, no. As we were a service provider, so um, Microsoft has internally something that's kind of like YouTube, and it's amazing. People will share things like they're not required to do anything in this space, but they do it voluntarily. They share mm-hmm. like, "Hey, here's how I just sold this sale," mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. And so they, Microsoft hired us, uh, a guy that we met at that uh, first podcasting conference, um, liked our podcast and said, "Hey, I'd like you to do a podcast in in our, in our space." And so we actually did a podcast promoting the podcast venue mm. for their 115,000 employees around the globe. Um, and so we were the first, as far as I know, to be about any outsider to be inside Microsoft's podcast arena, uh, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we did the first one, uh, we did a show on a series of shows on birthing a podcast, 
And uh, Marilyn, we don't have children, but Marilyn got to act like she was ha- having a baby. Um, <laughs> and it was a podcast that she pushed through. Um, but uh, anyway, stuff like that we did. Um, and so it was kind of cool to, to uh, get to work with Microsoft. That's interesting. So now you said you're in the top 2% of podcasts mm-hmm. of all time, right? When you started, like for us, it was easy. You just quickly record something and put it on Spotify and yeah. all your friends can quickly access it. Yep. And then... Spotify recommends you to other people. How did you actually grow at the very beginning if this was a whole new industry? Like, how, how did that work? Well, I think the main thing that happened to us was um, when we when we launched our podcast, it's an audio podcast. When we launched it, um, video was hot. And in fact, I went and talked to a couple of my former students in Chicago who were both doing uh, some video and stuff online, and they developed some good businesses. Um, and they really pushed us like, you guys really need to be thinking video. Well, our strength was audio. And this is coming, coming back from Chicago. Marilyn and I are driving. We're frustrated because we thought we had everything worked out, figured mm. out. But this is what you find happens. And you you got to be careful about letting people talk you out of your dream. And also be careful about um, they're, they're, they're doing their best to give you the best advice they think for you. But the reality is they're, doing, they're giving you advice that they would give to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, coming home from Chicago after talking to two students in a row, two very successful students who had, you know, started their businesses online and both saying, you guys need to go video. We're driving home from <coughs> Chicago and, and I don't remember which one of us did it, but one of us just like, we're going to, we're going to be audio. We got to be audio. That's our strength. We're going to do it. And so within about two weeks or so of launching, because when we went to this, these, the first conference, we hadn't even launched Big Success yet. So, But there was this guy named Chris Brogan who's still around. I highly recommend mm-hmm. anything he does, buy it. That sounds so familiar, that name, actually. Well, Forbes one year named him their number one social media influencer. Yeah, he's a big on Twitter. Yeah, he's huge mm-hmm. on Twitter. Wow. In fact, um, at the first conference, like he had 6,000 followers on Twitter. And nobody had like more than like fifty, you know. What I mean, <laughs> but he was—he's—he's he's huge. He's been huge, and he's a super, super, super great guy. Mm-hmm. Very helpful. Um, his owner media—if you look it up—but ChrisBrogan.com is the best way I know to find him. Um, but he—he he, um, about two weeks out, we 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 were doing a show mm-hmm. a day then, and only like five minutes long because that's what my radio buddy, my wife—that's what she had. <laughs> devoured out of these conferences is actually brevity is better Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in these podcasts, at least for us. And um, so like about two weeks into us broadcasting and, you know, having like 14 downloads or something like that um, and and thinking that, you know, the only people who are really hearing us are our close friends, um, maybe our parents. Um, Chris Brogan tweeted out something about this great new podcast he discovered. And I don't have any idea how he discovered us because at that time, I mean, you got in a new and noteworthy on Apple or you got referrals. I mm-hmm. mean, you just, there wasn't a lot. I mean, it was hard for people to find podcasts, which is why podcasting, did, it almost failed because it wasn't easy to use. Now it's gotten really easy to use. Mm-hmm. But then about maybe two weeks to a month after that, Chris Brogan tweeted or uh, wrote a blog post and it said, um, like, five firms I think you should watch in the podcast space. Well, there was one audio podcast in that space, wow. or in that list, and it was us. There's only one business still in existence out of that original <laughs> list, and that was us. Well, there wow. you go. Um, he chose right. So, anyway, um, he's, been, he, he's been, over the years, very good to us. 
and he's a super guy I can't say enough so about. So one thing that actually makes me think of with uh, when you went to the city and they said, oh, you have to do video, that's what's in, and you yeah. kind of put your foot down. There's something we've talked on the pod that, like, when someone gives you advice, they're just giving you their winning lottery ticket numbers or what worked for them. Right. So how do you filter advice? Because everyone has their own two cents or insights on what's best for you, right? Yeah. How do you know when to take someone's advice and actually use it yourself versus if they're more experienced than you versus just go with your with your own gut? I think... Do you have like a framework for thinking about that? Well, or is I, it? I, I've never thought about it that way, really, mm-hmm. Rohan, but um, I would say this. I, I think that in my experience... If it's early in the game, give me all the advice you got and let me filter it all, and I'll see what we end up with. But if it's late in the game and I've done all kinds of work and I've made decisions and I've decided that video is not not for us, it's audio, and then I hear somebody say audio or video and I hear somebody else say video, I don't think it's stubbornness. I think it's just nobody knows. We don't know. You know, Entrepreneurship, it's not really a serial process. It's a search process. You're searching for customers. And so when you, in the earliest stages, that's what it's all about. So if I can run tests and figure out what to do, and if I, could, if I can do that, like by, even just by asking people, filtering that conversation with everything that I know that they probably don't know, then I probably can arrive at the best decision for me. Interesting. Yeah, it's a really good framework. Going along with that, um, throughout your years as an entrepreneur, um, throughout your years doing big success with all the different experiences that I'm sure you've had speaking to different people Mm -hmm. um, in all areas of life. What are some of the the skills that you think are most important for someone, you know, whether they want to be an entrepreneur or like you said, with big Mm -hmm. success, like they don't need to want to be an entrepreneur. What are some of those skills that are like the most vital in your opinion in order to succeed? I would say number one is persistence. And number two is flexibility. So we did, uh, when we were still doing podcasts every day, um, I, I set up the podcast for um, stick to it, persist, stick to itness, persistence, that kind of thing. And then um, I said to Marilyn, I said, okay, by the way, here's the tease for the next podcast. And it was how to know when to change what you're doing. And she says, wait, we just told everybody you can't change, you need to <laughs> persist, and now you're telling people you've you, you got to change. And the reality is it's both. You've got to have the two. There's a great book called The Opposable Mind. It's all about leadership. And the, the point of the book is um, great leaders are able to hold two conflicting ideas in their head at the same time and come out with a better decision. Wow. And I think that's very true. And I think that, I think, in fact, I think I, my hope is your generation realizes we've spent too much time looking for um, oars. It's your way or my way. Mm-hmm. We need to be thinking about Ian's. It's your way and my way. And I think if we start thinking more like that, trying to find, you know, Stephen Covey, great book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mm-hmm. um, seek first to understand, then to be understood. It's, it's that idea, like just trying to understand where people are coming from and then offering suggestions yourself so that they understand where you're coming from. Wow, that's huge. So at what point on this whole journey did you decide, okay, now I want to be a professor at U of I? How did that whole arc it's, it's pretty amazing coming from you know college dropout to yeah, yeah. entrepreneur to back to school to a and, and actually this is something that jacob and i and some of my other friends have talked about that like a professor who's actually yeah. done stuff in the real world and mm-hmm. now is coming to the classroom and teaching their knowledge based on their own experiences are the best kinds of professors oh, for sure for you sure know? where it's not just in higher education continuing up the ladder yeah. it's like you have tangible 
client experiences. Yeah, because it's like no that. longer theory. It's it's real right. at this point. I, I feel the same thing. I felt the same way when I was in school. You know, keep in mind when I went back to school, I had three businesses going. And that was really helpful because I would take what I learned in the morning and apply it to my businesses in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and I found that very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, what got me teaching was simply, um, I mean, real. it's really pretty simple. It's just like everything else I've done and discovered. Um, my teacher for the course I now teach was my favorite professor. My class was my favorite class for the reasons you mentioned. My professor had taken what was then called McGladry Pullen, um, they went from like three three states to 35 states under his rule as senior partner. So the guy knew his stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to know him over the course of the semester, the way you get to know professors, which yeah. is just get in front of them and start talking. Um, and so along the way, um, I'd been out of school for about a year. I'd, I'd bought my partners out. I had the car- carpet cleaning business left because I'd sold off all of our real estate and it sold off the, or we liquidated the store. And now I only had the carpet cleaning business. And I'd gotten it to the point, like in, in a matter of a year, we were, sales were up like 25% or something. And I was just looking at what we got going. And I was to that point where it's like, okay, I need to just back off. I'm no longer day-to-day head. Um, I, I've got that, that job's out there for somebody else. And so, but what am I going to do? And the thought that came to my head was consulting. I was good at consulting. Um, and so... Consulting. So then I stopped in to talk to my professor, and I always kept him in the loop. Like if we were trying to raise money, I'd tell him about it. If we were, do, I mean, I'm looking at buying a business, I'm going to tell him about it. And so I just told him, you know, what I was thinking that I, I was, you know, kind of reaching this point where I'm going to be looking for something else to do. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, would you be willing to critique my syllabus? And I said, sure. I mean, I, at that time, I knew every syllabus of the business college practically because I'd taken all the courses. Mm-hmm. So I looked at his syllabus, I gave him some suggestions, and at the end of that session, I think that was just to test me and see if I was willing to do the work, because at the end of the session, he said, would you ever consider teaching this class? Well, I would have got a PhD if I thought that would have let me teach at the University of Illinois, but they said that you know the University of Illinois won't hire University of Illinois grads. And I'm like, okay, then I don't want to move anywhere right now. I've got everything going here, so... I guess I don't need to get a PhD because it's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned that you don't have to have a PhD to teach here, so I got my master's, and I had that. And then uh, he, he said, would you ever consider teaching? Well, I was qualified. I said, sure. So there's the opportunity again. Just mm-hmm. an opportunity popped up because they needed another teacher, and so I took it. And then actually about a year later, whoever was the head of the entrepreneurship department, which there was only one at that point in time, they got sick. And my 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 mentor, my professor, had held that position before this guy. And he said, would you ever consider doing that? He said, you know, like being in the academic world, but because he said the academics, they all want someone with academic experience, but the guys who fund it, the entrepreneurs, they want that real world experience. And mm-hmm. he said, you got it. And I said, what I also have is a remembrance of the bureaucracy around here. And I said, <laughs> I have no interest in that whatsoever. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a crazy, crazy great story. Like, I, I love to hear how how you went from, you know, just maybe school wasn't for you to, you know, yeah. teaching at it and yeah. being full circle my personal favorite teacher that I've had. <laughs> yeah. Maybe still um, I guess there's a, so you, you dropped out of college, but I know even in like our friend circles. By the way, a, I would not recommend that. Okay. <laughs> yes. That's what I was going to ask next. Okay. Um, what advice do you have for people that like have all these business ideas in their head, but they know that they have like a full time, full school schedule and now they're about to work full time in the city or something like that. 
how, what's the what's your kind of push over the edge of why you should go this route of involving yourself in some sort of entrepreneurship or even side hustles? So you're saying the person who's just got their first job or first after school job in the city. Yeah. Rohan's asking for himself because yeah, this is okay. him. He's <laughs> well, here's what I'll tell you. We had, uh, I can't remember whether this guy talked when you guys were in the class or not, but Jason, uh, Jason is his first name. He owns a real estate business. Rector? Yeah, he's yes. coming on the podcast. Okay, actually. he's great. Yeah. So the point is, he's he's been a full-time firefighter this whole time. He started in school. Actually, he started in high school. In high school, he started his first business. In college, he bought his first real estate investment. By the time he was 30, he owned he was worth over a million dollars, and now he's got assets in eight figures, so over $10 million, all while holding the job as a firefighter. So the point is, we have a lot more free time than we think. Mm -hmm. And I say, even <clears throat> if it involves buying a duplex, so that you rent out one side or two flat, you buy, buy out, rent out one side, keep the other one for, your, for yourself, and let them pay your rent too, so that you can start stocking more money away, I think that's absolutely huge. So mm -hmm. it's just the idea of starting something even on the side is where I would go. Because talk about taking away your risk. I mean, you know, and it doesn't have to be real estate, but real estate is just a good one to get started in. Mm -hmm. So how would you suggest someone that, um, you know, maybe they have a full-time job lined up, but they're like, maybe I just want to do full like entrepreneurship. Do you think that's, they should stick to the full-time job, learn a little bit, or do you think they should just go all in and figure it out? I'm going to be careful here and say that depends on you and your parents. Um, <laughs> but I, I will tell you, so here's an example, a former student, he wanted to do real estate. I mean, just full-time real estate. His parents wanted him to go to law school. And so he, he negotiated. I mean, he negotiated and negotiated. And this, this guy is a negotiator. He, he, was, he loves to negotiate. But he negotiated with his parents, and he got them to, to, the following, to agree to the following terms. I get to, so this is him speaking, I get to do real estate, but at the end of the year, if I'm not making as much as my investment banking friends are making, then I'll quit, quit real estate and I'll go to law school. The parents said, sure. And so it took him about eight months to get to get going, but he, he he made it just under the gun, and he started buying real estate, and he's he started flipping them is what he was doing at first, and he really was a lead gen. I mean, he really was marketing for contractors for remodelers, is what when you really look at the core of the business, that's right. that's its essence. But he did really well with that. He's making two three hundred thousand dollars a year a couple years out of out of college, and he's just kept going. Now. It's interesting because we were just talking about this in class the other day. When he started, he went, I mean, he would go into neighborhoods I would never even touch. I wouldn't even look in. You know, like he came here once and he said, let's go look at houses. Let's just go look. So I showed him different areas. Of, oh, this is my area. And it's like, I would never invest there. I would never invest in that area. But that's the difference. He's hungrier than me. And mm. But the last time he was down, he called me up and said, hey, George, I'm coming down to Champagne. How about going out for dinner? I said, okay. So um, we went out to dinner, and we're talking, and it's like he's hitting me up. with it. He's looking for information for all of these kind of what I would call high-end real estate properties, tri triple net lease, which yeah. is, okay, so mm -hmm. you guys know the idea. Um, and I'm like, this is a little different because, I mean, you are always about buy it, fix it up, and sell it. And he said, yeah, he said, but you get to a certain age, and he says, life's just a lot easier when I just buy the property that's perfect, and I just collect cash flow. And it's like, that's exactly right. That, that does happen. He would have uh, made a great lawyer based on that negotiation. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Maybe that's why his parents wanted him to go so bad. <laughs> well, there you go.
I think it's the story is really just like start somewhere small and then yeah. it'll just keep opportunities will keep falling in your lap yep. and then you just keep reaching for them going exactly for them. right and actually I'll tell you there's empirical evidence for that mm-hmm. that that's the way entrepreneurs actually build they, they look for an opportunity for that opportunity the main thing they're doing is they're minimizing the risk mm-hmm. then they'll accept the return but they'll constantly be working on trying to improve that return and then what they try to do is they store up money for another opportunity and then another opportunity and then another opportunity and this is how they build their empire so that is more of the entrepreneur that I think of. Mm-hmm. But recently I've been hearing a lot about, you know, there's a different side of entrepreneurship, which is, you know, Silicon Valley, yes. or there's all these huge VC firms that'll, you know, fund you millions and millions of dollars before you even have any profit. Right. profit. And maybe that might be a couple of years old by at this yeah. point with the interest rates and everything. But how do you, how do you think of, um, you know, getting investment or, coming up with the next huge idea versus just starting somewhere small and making it profitable where it's at? I think coming up with the next big idea, that's the lottery, right? I mean, you can't predict it. Right. Um, And I guess I would also say, I guess, I think this is a California phenomenon moved to the Midwest, but... um, Like, I remember watching, I don't remember what I was watching, but I remember seeing this show or podcast or something, the, the entrepreneurs, every single one of them was talking about, we're going to sell out to this company. We're going to sell out. None of them, not a single one, talked about how they were going to build a business. Mm. I think at some time that bubble bursts and you're back to business. You're yeah. back to real business. And like even real estate, we're, I was talking to somebody about real estate the other day, and you know we've, we've been in really kind of a, about a 15-year cycle of real estate that real estate's still kind of out of whack. I mean... I'm not saying the prices are necessarily so crazy because they're not as bad as they were in 2007, 2008, but we just really haven't had what I would call a normal real estate market in 10 or 12 years. Theoretically, that means we're getting more efficient, but I think it's just there's so much money out there. There's going to be a correction. There's going to be a correction. Well, we had, we, my dad and I, we buy real estate and we were looking at houses in our price range Mm -hmm. and there's six on the market this year. Mm -hmm. Same time last year, there's like, over 30. Absolutely. And so yeah. it's it's just crazy that yep. they're going like like really yeah. quick and yeah. still, and you wouldn't expect that with the way interest rates are and everything else like that. I know, that. but it it's just crazy. seems like building, like I've got a friend who, um, he owns a, a website that uh, helps people when the, if they're wanting to build a new home. And I mean, I just keep waiting to hear from him like, oh my gosh, we just fell through the floor. But no, they're still just going like, I mean, it's, it's just crazy, like better right? than ever. So we'll see how long it lasts. Yeah. yeah. Well, definitely. I think we're running out of our, our time here. But this has gone by so quick. Yeah, it's we've been. You know, gem honestly, after gem. my favorite podcast we've done is so good. So <laughs> good. much, so it's much good information, one. and we really appreciate you coming on. Great. Like we said, we really loved your class, and it taught myself. I don't know about yeah. speak for Rohan too, but I learned a lot about entrepreneurship, and it really um, sparked you know, the fire. S- yeah, sparked yeah. our interest in you know wanting to do something more entrepreneurial with our lives as we go on. So, well, I applaud you for the podcast, and uh, you always two of my best students. So, uh, <laughs> thank you, thank that. you. Thank Hope you. you're not just saying that. No, you've already got the grade. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Right. We'll take care. Yep. See ya. Thank you.